2: This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts, this is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello, and welcome to the last episode in the current series of Dark Unicorn in Conversation. My guest today is an actor who has been popping up on stage and screen since the 60s and whose face is as recognisable as any of the great British performers of his generation. He made something of a name for himself playing various villains and rogues in the 1980s as well as playing a number of uh, dashing love interests and uh, prominent support characters in television series and films in the 1990s and into 2000s. To an international commercial mainstream audience, he is perhaps best known as the raffish and completely amoral French archaeologist Belloc, René Belloc, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Or, indeed, as the arch-villain Ivan Ooze in the Power Rangers movie of the mid-90s. He was also a staple for many years in Monarch of the Glen and played the pivotal role of Foreign Secretary Tom Makepeace in the final instalment of the original UK House of Cards trilogy. He also had a prominent showdown, at the conclusion of his character arc in Simon Pegg's Hot Fuzz. His eyes are among the most recognisable on the UK screen and his name is as you probably already know, Paul Freeman. When we sat down to talk only last week, we started out, as I did with my first guest and so many in between, talking about whether or not the arts was an influence in his early life.
1: Uh, Paul, were the
2: arts an integral part of your upbringing?
1: Uh, Not at all, no. I've often wondered why I, why, from my background I should have got interested. My father was a scientist. He was a microbiologist. Oh. Um, he didn't intended to be a doctor, but he came from a very poor, uh, almost sub-working-class background in London, in Camden. So uh, his parents couldn't afford a medical school. He went, put himself through university at the uh, London School of Tropical Medicine and became a microbiologist. And I think he would have been very happy if either me or my brother had followed him into science, but we didn't. And um, where, the, where the arts thing came from, I don't know. I was just aware that uh, that was my inclination from fairly early on. I used to draw and paint a lot. I don't do that anymore, but um, uh, I don't know. I don't know why. I had a response to language. I think. I think that was the um, the key, really. Always reading as a child, you know. I think that was, and probably still remains my main interest. I'm not particularly interested in theatre, and even less interested in drama. Actually, it's strange. Not very interested in people's made-up stories anymore, partly having been around for so long so that you can sort of guess from the opening page how it's going to end, you know. And I don't any longer want to compare different versions of Hedda Gabler, <laughs> if you see what I mean.
2: Yes, I can perfectly understand that. Um, the I understand that your, your early career, so you're working in in advertising and then in education, is that correct, or have I been
1: misinformed? Yeah, I went from school into advertising, I didn't go to university, I went from the sixth form at a grammar school in Barnet, North London. Uh, The headmaster's brother worked in this rather swanky advertising place in uh, Baker Street, agency there. Turned out to be awfully useful later on in acting because I got to know the West End terribly well. I was given for, for somebody who knew nothing about London, really. I was a suburban boy to give, be given an expense card and told I had to go around the town, mainly in taxes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I got to know London terribly well,
2: which was very useful later. I was going to ask what, if anything, that, that gave you that you've carried forward into your career, but is there, was there anything beyond the geography? <laughs>
1: Precious little else, I think. <laughs> and then And then um, I could see. I, I Also, interestingly, it sort of harks back to your first question. I did have a, a, an idea. I knew something about the way adverts and films were made. I did have an idea that getting into commercials might be a way in to the film world as a writer or director or whatever. I hadn't thought that through consciously. But, you know, I'm not sure if I knew then that there were people like Ridley Scott, for instance, who, or Alan Parker indeed, who were famous commercials directors who went, I don't know if that was an impetus. I think that came later. I just had an idea there might be an entree into cinema or theater by working in um, advertising. And then after a couple of years, it became apparent that wasn't so. And I got very tired of, uh, we were living um, quite near Cockfosters. Mm. And um, so the commute, it was a daily commute, wearing a suit and tie. And I just hated all of that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't bear. The irony of that is that when I started acting, I was in, constantly wearing a suit and tie afterwards. but. At least on a daily basis, I didn't have to wear a suit and tie. So I got out of it, and I had a girlfriend at the time who was in a teacher's training college, so I went to a teacher's training college with an emphasis on drama, thinking I would become a teacher of drama. And uh, so the connection with language and um, literature continued, you know. Did you teach? When I was there, the drama school, there were people in my year and in the years around me who knew how to move into into acting from this um drama school so i followed them really i thought why not let's try it
2: Mm. so your your training was as it were to teach drama rather than being a sort of conservatoire in and of itself was this
1: yeah absolutely it was a it's a a college which was then called the new college of speech and drama it was a breakaway from the royal college of music had been set up i think i think the breakaway happened a year or two years before the year the entry year that i was in
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, do you think in i mean what's now sadly a very much post-rep world that the formal training for actors is is essential or do you think native talent will out
1: i don't know that talent can be taught i think there has to be some innate talent that makes you go towards it i think that's probably the same in any artistic endeavor you know and you need some technique it's all very well being incredibly passionate but if you can't speak There's no point to
2: it. Agreed. Um, It's often remarked in articles about your career that there's a a rich theme of of villainy and roguery in many of the roles for which you uh, became known, as well, of course, as an international flavor to a lot of those characters, but there's also an intense charisma to many of them as well. Do, Do you see it as your job, if you've been given a villainous role, as it were, to round out that character and make them more relatable?
1: Um, Simply, yes. I think that's because I don't believe in the concept of evil being something that arrives on this earth fully formed. Evil, in my opinion, is something that arrives through people's experiences. Bad nurturing. (laughs) Um, But I must say, I never thought consciously about am I going to play villains? Am I going? Am I heading in one direction or the other? That was very much a sort of bottles in a stream thing, the way it arrived, you know. Uh, for instance, an obvious example is that after Raiders of the Lost Ark, I could have, and did indeed for many years after that, survived playing Nazis.
2: <laughs>
1: until it, it just became so tiresome. There, there too is an example of sort of evil being used as a, a metaphor, really, and uh, not having any reality. You can't humanize um, uh, Gruppenführers in, in concentration camps, of which I played a few. And finally, down that road, I started to ask myself, well, where am I going? Am I aiming to play Hitler or something? Is there a sort of progression here? In which case, I didn't want to be part of it. No.
0: <laughs> You looking for me?
1: <laughs> Bellac. Good afternoon, Dr. Jones. I ought to kill you right now. Not a very private place for a murder?
0: Well, these Arabs don't care if we kill each other, they're not going to interfere in our business.
1: It was not I who brought the girl into this business. Please sit down before you fall down. We can at least behave like civilized people. I see your taste in France remains consistent. How odd that it should end this way for us after so many stimulating encounters. I almost regret it. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You and I are very much alike. Archaeology is our religion. Yet we have both fallen from the pure faith. Our methods have not differed as much as you pretend. I am a shadowy reflection of you. Don't take only a nudge to make you like me. To push you out of the light. Now you're getting
2: nasty. You know it's true. And there will be, uh, of course, an expectation on the part of our audience that I will ask about some of your more internationally famous roles, but I'll keep that fairly brief. Um, I mean, you're you're on the record countless times talking about the nuts and bolts of those, and I wouldn't want to bore you by asking you to recap all of that. But what I will ask is this, by by being part of what I think is a a genuinely iconic franchise like the Indiana Jones movies um, and a role which will be you know, inevitably in the first paragraph of any article written about you, Um, and will keep you in convention appearances to kingdom come if so desired. What, What do you gain and what do you lose by being so closely associated with such an institution?
1: I can't think of any loss associated with it. I think there's only gains. Just the, the 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 width of the audience, the depth of the audience. term, I mean, an enormous audience, and to be associated. I mean, I'm terribly glad and proud to have been associated with something, which has meant so much to so many people, and is so palpably, of its kind. Almost unique and a sort of trendsetter. And that's another reason why I find drama drama so difficult. Having having seen something like that put together to see all the following, I'm I'm not casting aspersions here, but to see all the following ones, which look to me so tired and second rate and um, tired ideas really, you know. I mean, it was,
2: I I rewatched the radios a couple of days ago um, when I was going through my notes for this and, and it does still have a freshness to it because it is so, it's not, it it is unlike anything else, and even I mean, before forty years since it was released, next year, um, it it doesn't it doesn't seem tired. It doesn't no. seem. I mean, it's even with the, the the advances that there've been in in special effects and CGI and that since there is a, a very, it doesn't seem to have aged particularly at all. It's, sort
1: of, it's partly the audaciousness of it, I think. I mean, if, if you were looking for a parallel, it would be that parallel that Lucas and Spielberg talked, moved from originally of the sort of Saturday morning children's picture adventure, you know, and that still rings true. I think the the, the speed of the storytelling and the audacity of it mm. and that's still very enjoyable. And I think that's what's missing in all the follow-ups. Not particularly in that franchise, although I do think it's true of that franchise, but I think across the whole spectrum of those sorts of adventure films which came afterwards. Mm -hmm.
2: Do you, um, I know you do attend a lot of conventions um, and and things like that. I I do
1: Comic-Cons when they come up. First of all, I just did it because I was intrigued about this other income stream. (laughs) And And I rather What's the word? Didn't not despised it particularly, but I wasn't, I didn't want that to be a career avenue. But after I'd done a couple, I began to see that the demographic who attends most of those conventions, not in the UK so much, but certainly in the US, there's a certain type of family I found who make up the majority of that demographic usually they have somebody in the family with a disability a mental disability a physical disability and the family have grouped themselves around that person in their family and it's as if there is a a way they can all be released and free amongst other families of the same kind at those at those conventions. And I'm very impressed with the way they are run too. They're very, very keen that people can do almost anything they want. They dress however they want within the realms of decency. But um, everybody else accepts it. There is no criticism. It's very good. And in the US, the safeguarding. From a weapons point of view, is very good too, considering that so much of them is are devoted to sort of science fiction weapons, mm. you know.
2: And do you find that your um, your interaction with fans is is you know fairly uniformly pleasant and and you know mutually. Uh, mutually beneficial or um is it
1: more than that i'd go further than that i've been very moved by the people i've met during that and and the importance of what they're doing of the freedom for those weekends Mm. to them and to their entire family Uh, particularly i always remember there was a a, a one in pasadena some years ago uh where two um very beautiful young girls had brought their brother in who was intensely disabled he was in a very elaborate sort of almost Stephen Hawking type wheelchair with all sorts of equipment. And he in was, they'd bought him there specifically to meet me mm. because of the film. A Power Rangers, I think in this mm. instance, it generally is Power Rangers by the way, and Raiders are always a second. Um, and this boy, um, was in tears at meeting me. And they had to, he insisted on getting out of the chair, which meant all sorts of buttons had to, had to be raised up automatically. It was incredibly moving. Mm. And that was an extreme art uh, example, but there've been many occasions like that. So I, I don't want to say I'm doing it for therapy. If there wasn't money involved, I wouldn't do it. No, perhaps, perhaps I would, I don't know. I, I'm determined to enjoy it too. And I do enjoy it now when I do it. Um, and, and it's had some very interesting knock-on effect. Like there was a, um, a, a a German couple who I've been in touch with for some years now. Um, I, I should say that my wife and I have been running until until when last November, November nineteen. Uh, we've been running a charity in Uganda, the two of us. And um, I always made a point of talking about it, and often. Uh, having artifacts from this, the Ugandan school mm. on the desk that I could give to people as well at the same time. A lot of people were interested. I had a lot of donations on that route. But this particular couple, this German couple, have um, almost they, they've organized their own German charity and they've chosen our, our school as a, um, as a beneficiary. Mm. And that's been wonderful. So I go over there on a weekend every other year They take care of me very well, but um, really it's become a sort of family thing. I've I've found myself advising them about how their children should be brought up. What do I know about it? Nothing at all. But because we now have a relationship that's ongoing, you know? It's benefiting the children in Uganda. It's benefited me and it's benefited them. It's, it's remarkable.
2: You have mentioned actually, um, uh, Roel, I was going to, you said that actually quite often um, people come to see you at conventions because of the Power Rangers movie. And certainly when um, we publicized that, that uh, we were recording this interview with you, um, the first thing I got was a message from a, a friend of mine, uh, Matthew Hayward in Cardiff, uh, they were a huge part of his childhood. That movie and and that character had been. Um... I suppose uh, what I want to ask about that is twofold. Was that, is there any possible way in which that could have been a role you ever thought you might play? <laughs> and, um, and leaving or, a...
1: or wanted to play even when I was offered it. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a rather low, it came at a rather low ebb in my career. Um, we had just, we used to have a rather lovely house out in the countryside in Essex a Bauhaus building. And um, we could no longer afford to live there at that point. We just moved back into London when this came on the cards. It was very enjoyable at the outset. The script I had to do a filmed, a taped audition, mm-hmm. um, and the script originally was much more enjoyable than what we ended up with because he was a complete shapeshifter. Uh, in other, uh, in other words, I had to. He moved from being um, black at one point to being a woman at another point. So there was a great variety and it was so crazy that the audition was very easy because I had complete liberty to do whatever I wanted. Nobody had any idea actually what they were going to, what they were after even. Mm. I don't think they had any premeditated ideas about the character. It was in the event it turned out to be a little more restricted than that, but it was nevertheless very enjoyable.
2: Also, leaving aside the, the the weight of the costume and the four-hour job of getting the prosthetics on, is there something do you find truly liberating about basically performing behind a mask like that? Oh,
1: of course, I mean you know the classic example of that would be Lawrence Olivier who. Only later in his life, when I believe uh, Joan Plowright told him they should perhaps try doing it without a false nose, <laughs> did he realize that was possible. And he fr- was very frank about it. But no, 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 hiding behind something, of course, is, is, is very liberating. I don't any longer want to put on makeup and, and hide behind things. But then I don't very much want to play those sort of roles anymore, I think. On the other hand, I have a great desire for, um, not desire, a great affinity for playing pantomime. I think there's something wonderful about that direct mm. relationship with the audience. Have you done a lot of pantomime, or have you? No, not since my first year in Crew Theatre Royal. <laughs> it's called the Theatre Royal. Yes. When I played the dame. A very, very rude dame, I have to say. <laughs>
2: Would it be something you'd go back to if if you were offered?
1: Yes. Well, there we are. (laughs) Um, um, Whether I'd be physically up for it now, there's pantomimes tend to... I I saw from the news yesterday that the pantomime season is being supported this year. um,
2: I'm going to take a a huge leap now in a different direction. You you have a very rich theme of theatre roles under your belt, and I was interested in my research to find an association throughout parts of the 80s with the work of Howard Barker. Yeah. Um, Now, I studied Barker extensively at university because my prof was uh, David Ian Raby, who's one of the sort of preeminent scholars of his work and uh, and a friend of Howard's. And I was reading a very interesting and challenging interview, which which actually you gave to David in the late 80s when he was writing his first book. where, among other things, you talk about Howard's subversion of expected emotions within any given scene, the obviously tragic moment that plays out as comedy, etc With the benefit of, of quite a number of years of hindsight, do you, do you feel you were part of something very important with those shows uh, theatrically? And, and also, Howard's work tends to be much more celebrated in Europe than it is in the UK, and I was just wondering from having been on the inside of it why you think the uk is so reluctant to embrace his work
1: well it's it's political for a start and we're not really interested in that <laughs> i think we're a largely philistine nation we much rather see endless head of garblers which is about what i mean it is about something we could go over everybody knows it Howard's work was so original and and which a wonderful, wonderful streak of humor. Um, And I thought thought he was the funniest writer of his generation. There came a point, it was while he was writing The Castle. And if he ever hears this, he will not thank me for saying it. But um, he made a public announcement during during the, the rehearsal of The Castle, I think. That he had a stewed humour. I have a stewed humour. It's a strange word, stewed. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in the play. It's a broken black play. The first half has wonderful Howard Barker dark humour in it, mm-hmm. and the second just becomes becomes inadvertently funny because you just can't you can't have bodies dropping from ceilings in small venue theatres around the country without people doubling up with laughter. <laughs> as yet another straw-filled dummy falls out of the roof, you know.
2: It's very true. I, I find some, some of his later work as well, you can really see where the... I mean, he put, let a certain amount of humour back in, but where it became... I don't know if you saw Gertrude, his, his take on Hamlet, Gertrude, The Cry, um, which I find. I think possibly I should. I wasn't supposed to find it as funny as it was, but it, it was. Uh, it had moments of, of tremendously rich humour of that harked back to his earlier stuff, and then and then moments in which you just thought, I don't know why you've gone down this particular route, and really quite gratuitous stuff in there as well. Uh, just just looking very very glancingly at, at um, one role of yours, which um, was. And possibly for me, one of the, the first things I, I, I recall associating you with earlier in my life was the final cut in the, in the mid-90s, the last part of the original House of Cards trilogy. Do you think Tom Makepeace would have gone on to be a good Pierre?
1: Better than what we've got. <laughs> and better than what we've had since 2008.
2: I agree, yes. Um... <laughs> We are in a we are in a very bizarre position at the moment. Are
1: we not? Did you see the news last night that Trump has suggested that he has a medical on TV in real time to prove how fit he is? Gosh, that is terrifying. And it it is the real life is becoming like some sort of surreal joke, isn't it? It really has. And I don't know whether that's the end
2: result of what you get when you put a reality TV star into a position of, of, of very real power. But then, of course, you look, you know, closer to home
1: and we've got... We have our own. Oh, I'm sure, and he's looking so unhappy, Boris, now. I'm sure he'd be much happier if he was running his own reality TV show.
2: Well, yes, indeed. I, I, I fear it may not be that long before he is. <laughs>
1: um, then we can all turn off. Yes, what used to be called there was a where this phrase. You ever heard the phrase "the shit click button"? See, it was once people got remotes. You just go shit click. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, looking at uh, one of your else from uh, earlier in the, the early two thousands, Morlang it takes a very dizzying approach to time and, and linearity in its narrative. It has a very European cinematic feel to it. Um, plus, of course, the you know, fascinatingly turbulent twin beauties that are the Irish countryside and, and Susan Lynch. Um, does, does that perhaps slightly more, I want to say, intellectualised form of storytelling appeal more to you as a performer? Or, or do you just do you take a pretty uniform approach to preparing your characters however the story will be told?
1: Um, I don't have, I don't have a sort of theory about approaching a character, except to do as much possible research as I can, which by and large involves, unless it's an historic character, involves taking great pains to understand what other people are saying about that character. Mm. And the one thing I, the one thing I suppose I did learn from joint stock days yeah. was taking responsibility for what you do, which is why I'm, I don't watch very much, and I'm not very much interested in those sorts of. Power Rangers type movies anymore. Mm. For instance, I saw some friends down here uh, showed Black Panther the other night, Mm. which had all sorts of wonderful things in it. I mean, the army of black women I thought was formidable. And the roles for the women in it were much better than the men's roles, which were either good or bad. Not very interesting, the wonderful array of women and black women in that. But finally, it came down to In fact, my wife said it, she said, this is Power Rangers. Halfway through, it became Power Rangers with crossing arms and, you know, that sort of thing. And we are all transformed into fighting machines. (laughs) So tired of all of that. And so tired that people don't see what a knock-on effect it's had to the way we live, how we are accepting all sorts of horrors. Like this morning, We have been, I don't, stop me if I'm running away with this, but this morning we've been out on the beach here in St. Leonard's, where there's been, in the St. Leonard's and Hastings, have a very good thing called the Buddy Project. Hmm. Do you know about it? Which is um, acting, very active on behalf of refugees and immigrants who arrive on the boats across here, um, landing on the shore, you know. and uh, we had all been encouraged to make these big banners and we took my wife's an artist and she made a very spectacular red banner six meters long so we could all distance as we held it in the wind which wasn't easy and then we so all along between the groins on the beaches here there were these people holding up these banners welcoming and supporting refugees you know and i think that's what we need more of we need more it's my age, but we need more redemption. We need more kindness. Agreed. Um, You
2: mentioned your joint stock days. And and, I mean, I think there was something very new and very vital about the method in which the the methodology that was used in preparing those plays and the tremendous work that came out of it. I mean, really quite transformative work, um, really, plays that still carry tremendous weight of of and not only uh, message but style as well
1: um, do, do people still do them?
2: I think some of the well, yes there have been a number of the 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 ones that you know um that I think came out of that particularly a lot of Carol Churchill stuff it has to be said yeah. Um, yeah. and some of David Hare's um, it's, um
1: not fan Shen. I don't think you can no. do fan Shen anymore I was like just David. Saying. it it will now look very quaint and ignorant, I think, in some ways.
2: I think it's also-
1: Going back to your question about Howard Barker, there was a real distinction there between the joint stock method of working with a a writer Mm -hmm. to examine what he was doing and then actors and writers disappear while they all mull over it. And then eventually we produce something which is an amalgam, hopefully, of what we've been working on. Whereas Howard would come up and was not interested in your opinion of his work. He wanted the play done absolutely properly, in my opinion. But consequently, when his work begins to fall fall off, there is no method that's gonna help you get it back on track. Whereas the the great lesson from uh, Bill Gaskell and Max Stafford Clark was taking responsibility as actors, everybody in the company, taking responsibility for their role in the play and their role in running the company too. We'd never quite successfully set it up as a, a total cooperative or a total commune, if you like. In fact, David Hare famously said, when we had a very long meeting about, are we going to take complete control as actors and Bill Gaskell and Max would just become part of the company as instead of leaders, which they obviously were, And we didn't take that step. And David said, we've seen the crack in history and we've missed it.
2: Do you think there will be, do you think there needs to be something of the revolutionary instinct of of the likes of John Stock or 784 that fashioned for the current era in order to shake things up a bit? Do you think we've got very staid
1: I'd love to see it. I think it's worse than being stayed. I think there is a real know, impetus that's anti-political, determined to keep people ignorant, determined not to let people explore and imagine, you know. On the other hand, wonderful things like Black Lives Matter occurring. Mm. You know, who and I say wonderful, hoping it's going to continue, I'm sure it will, but um, we have been here before, though never quite this ardent, I think.
2: No, I think it's, everyone is so, it's the, it's the, it's the best of what happens when people have instant access to information. Now. Of course, the worst of what happens is that, that then people get very tired of it and they get story fatigue very quickly. And then the, the, the passion dissipates um, on a mass level, at least. Um, but I'm, I'm certainly I'm with you there. I think um...
1: but I see the news today about this uh, poor man who was um, uh, who uh, died because he couldn't breathe in Catford, wasn't it? They've just had this inquest. Yeah. And you think that's exactly the same thing. And I don't think there would have been this emphasis on it if it hadn't followed on from the whole. Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, impetus.
2: I mean, I remember a number of years ago, I had sort of stepped away from theatre for a few years and I became a communications advisor for a while and I worked for... The, my last job before I came back to theatre was working as an advisor to the... Um, what When I went in was the Association of Chief Police Officers. And one of the things I looked at in terms of how we communicated was... How they deal with people in custody, whether it be on the street or in in cells or whatever. And it was one of the early stories I had to cover was uh, exactly this. It was a, a restraint that went wrong. The the chap was in a state of sort of positional asphyxia, as they call it. He had been he had spat at the officers, so they deployed a spit hood as well. So then the chap suffocated. And I I had to. It was it was. I felt was important in my role that I could turn to chief officers and say, I can't help you with this. <laughs> There's really nothing, you know, you have to take responsibility for these officers. They were, they overstepped the mark and I, I'm not going to try and spin it for you. Um, and that's six, seven years ago. And of course that managed at the time, there were other things in the headlines and it, it sort of died to death, but it's... Um, it's good that we are getting more coverage for things like
1: that. It is good, but then on the other hand, you see at the same time the Prime Minister, to his party conference, although he's alone in a room, looking very unhappy, as I said, but, um, alone in a room, talking about, we don't want human rights. Yes. Who is this? Who doesn't want human rights? I mean, don't get me started. It takes you back to the whole Brexit thing about we don't want an international criminal court. Who doesn't want it? Who in their right minds will only people who will not benefit from having an international criminal court, obviously?
2: Well, exactly. And it's, it's. Um... but there again, you know, that was also the period where we were being told, oh, we don't want experts anymore either. And for God's sake,
1: honestly. Right. right, and then we land in a pandemic.
2: Um, leaving aside roles that you may have taken in your career for the cash as you know and we all have them um, what is there a nugget of something I know you sort of touched on elements of this but is there a nugget of something that you look for when you look at the scripts that are offered to you before you'll consider putting yourself forward for a particular role is there something that you want to say
1: well in the sense that i want to approve of the politics of whatever it is that i'm doing having said that i have to confess that this series i've just finished for amazon prime did you know about that thing no oh, no absentia mm. we just finished the third year of it last december Well, I knew it was a piece of misogynist rubbish from day one, but um, because of all the anti female violence in it and just the general amount of violence, something I am appalled by and consequently haven't watched the programme. On the other hand, at my age, to be given a role playing an American, I must say, which was a a real first to be working with Americans, playing an American, I was really glad at the opportunity to have that. And I was also very glad in these last three years to have been working consistently. Mm. Well, glad, and I suppose, grateful. Are there...
2: Is it, has it now come to an end? So in end?
1: other words, the principle up to a point.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: when it comes to...
2: Uh, Theatre. Do you have a favourite theatre in which to perform? The oh, which- I'm
1: I'm 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 terribly attached uh, to the Royal Court. Hmm. Well, it's truth to say I was terribly attached to the Royal Court until about fifteen years ago, and uh, I've become so appalled by the things that they saw then that I haven't been back. Mm. And Wyndham's I'm very fond of. I played art there a couple of times in uh, the early years of this century. And uh, that's a lovely theatre to play. Mm.
2: It's a very lovely theatre. It's also a very lovely play, actually. uh,
1: Yeah, it works well, doesn't it? I was trying to revive it. There was a feeling that that with Ron Cook, who had been in it as well as an old friend and who else was it? Oh, uh, Richard Richard Thomas, the American actor, who's a, who's a dear friend too, and has been in it a couple of times. We might try to do a version and put it out on Zoom or something. Yeah, but it turns out that she won't release. Oh. She won't release the rights for that.
2: So. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I I'm awfully fond of Ron's work. I think yeah. he's he's. Remarkably underrated, I think, is an actor, Ron. He's, he does such fantastic stuff. I don't, he
1: never does working. No,
2: he never does. No. Is. Always popping up here and there. And, and actually, quite often, there's much more variety than at first one might think. But mm. I thought he was rather charming in that um, recent thing with David Tennant, the Dennis Nilsson um, drama. Oh, was
1: he? I didn't see that. He, he um, asked me because he hadn't seen it either. I don't know why.
2: He played the superintendent, uh, um, so he only had, you know, I think he was in two out of the three episodes and he, um, it was a smallish role, but it was beautifully done. Mm -hmm. Um, Like uh, my colleague and business partner at Dark Unicorn, Eleanor Stoughton, who viewers will have seen at the start of every episode sort of drumming up business for us. Um, I know you and your wife, Maggie, have a, a very deep and abiding love for and connection to Uganda, um, in your case, through your work with the, the Healing Focus School there. Uh, would you care to to tell our viewers and listeners about, about that project and, and your connections there and, and how they can help support?
1: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it came about in 2008. Our daughter, uh, when she left uni, had a human rights degree and her first uh, assignment was with an NGO in Kampala Swedish and or no, Swedish I think she said it's a wonderful country come out for a holiday which so we went on Christmas 20 uh, uh, 2008 and um, fell in love with the country and uh, so we're not going to send back Christmas presents. Is there any local charity we could support that you know? And a young woman in her office, Esther Baguli, had this project with her husband of looking at, they were looking after about 60 uh, homeless orphans, HIV, AIDS orphans in Tom's village. 20 of them they supported in school. They paid the fees for school. 20 of them were very young and were lying in his father's, house, he just had room for them on the floor and he kept them on the floor and Tom would arrive from time to time with money for them and clothes for them and so on. And another 20 were doing a very interesting project where he'd got old Singer sewing machines which um, are still in use there and they're so hardy that they carry on forever. And he had this project and they were quite cheap then. He would teach um, young people, not just children, uh, from outlying villages who would come in, do this thing, and then you'd give them a certificate, plus the machine. So they could take the machine back to their village mm-hmm. and support themselves and earn a living. It was a terrific enterprise. We gave them a little money to help them through it. It turned out they'd lost their headquarters that, that summer, that no, not summer, Christmas time. And um, we gave them a little money, went back a year later to see them again and there was a school. Tom had turned up with the, to see the twenty kids he was putting through school, and found there were no teachers. Uh, very often in Uganda, the government teachers don't get paid, and this had happened there, and they'd all gone off to work in the sugarcane or something. So um, Tom took it into his own hands and decided to set up this school. He had a school for two hundred and fifty HIV/AIDS orphans, ranging from three very really young three years old to about 15 and uh, so we found ourselves supporting a school and that continued we then registered it as a charity in the UK and uh, it became a big success we've been able to completely we've now rebuilt it about three times the original buildings were all made of wood and they have a terrific problem with termites there so we now have a spanking new brick buildings for the most part there's one bit of building for the nursery section which still has to be done but I believe we have the money to do that this year I'm not on on involved anymore on a day-to-day basis it became so overpowering that Maggie and I were both working on it there came a time when every mealtime was a discussion about the school you know until we just had to say we've got to walk away from this And had, I have to say, had a very couple, a couple of very difficult years in 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. Tom himself was badly beaten and uh, was warned he should leave the country, which indeed he did, to escape with his life because he was prosecuting some men in the village who'd raped some of our girls. Um, And the police weren't helping, so eventually we and he got an international organisation to help us prosecute them, and that went ahead. But as a consequence, Tom was terrorised and beaten in his house with armed men, and it was horrible. And he's now in Canada trying to get a visa. The school's being run by um, Esther, his wife, and being run terribly well. She's doing. She it was who was in the original organisation with our daughter they're both graduates she's incredibly skillful at managing this so it's going ahead well and they've come through this dark patch so it's very good
2: well if you look down in the description below the video um or uh, on the description on the page for the podcast um then you will find how to support uh, the healing focus school in uganda Uh, paul what are you most proud of personally and professionally
1: um well, you know, I'm really, I don't know if you saw it, but I did um, a, a, a four part series for Netflix a couple of years ago, four years ago called Tokyo Trial mm. about the aftermath of the second world war in Japan. Not many people know, but there was an equivalent of the uh, Nazi trial in Tokyo after the end of the war. Gosh. Yeah, very interesting. It was a really interesting subject. And, very, very difficult because a co-production between Canadians, the Japanese, and uh, a Dutch director since died who got the whole thing together and off the ground. Mm. It wasn't, it, it's very long, it's a bit too long in parts, but it's absolutely fascinating. And I was really, really proud of that. Other things are the, the thing you mentioned before, when I'm 64, I'm very, very pleased with that. Also because it allowed me to play a North Londoner, which is what I am. I'm <laughs> hardly ever allowed to play that, you know. So that very much felt like going home. They were the sort of people, those two men were the sort of people I'd grown up with. They're related, very decent suburban people, you know.
2: I remember reading...
1: And, of course, Raiders.
2: Well, yes, of course. Um, I was reading, I was going through my notes for this, a... Uh, uh, Snippet of a thing, Alan Armstrong saying that he, um, uh, what well, was it was very liberating to do when I'm sixty-four because the he said even when he said at first he found himself balking slightly about the the love scene because he said it was just because for no other reason than he said it was a taboo which was so ingrained in one that it became very difficult to overcome, um, but was very pleased that he had overcome it. I think it's a it's a a wonderful story about. A section of the community that we don't talk about nearly enough, I think, not just in terms of um, sort of people as they grow older. Although I don't think enough is made of 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 that section of society as well, particularly dramatically. But um, those people who are suddenly finding that they can discover themselves at a, a later stage than most other people—it's uh, fascinating and very moving to watch. Mm. What do you still want to achieve, if anything?
1: Well, you know, I've always wanted to play the fox in Pinocchio. <laughs> well, there we are. There you are. think still to aim for. So, possibly, you could view this as an advert for a, the pantomime season coming up. Somebody's putting on Pinocchio and needs a fox. Honest John. <laughs>
2: there you are yes well indeed if there are I mean we we I know that we have uh, brought in a lot of uh, producers and casting directors over the course of the series if they are still watching the series then um, and <laughs> please do to uh, <laughs> get in touch we'll pass it on we have, rounded off each interview with each guest by, by taking a moment to just tip our hats to like James Lipton, who founded Inside the Actors Studio in New York, um, who died uh, earlier this year uh, in his early 90s. He would finish each interview by asking every subject the same 10 questions, very short questions, um, which I'll, I'll kick off with. What's your favorite word?
1: Ooh, i have to come back. Can I come back to that? Yes, you can come
2: back to that. We can edit it however you
1: like. I tell you, no, I know what it is at the moment. It'll change, Echinacea.
2: (laughs) Do you have have a- A very
1: nice Echinacea in my garden just
2: here. Ah, what is your least favorite word? Do you have a word that really makes you bristle? (laughs) What excites you? Jazz. And what completely turns you off?
1: Country and western.
2: What sound or noise do you love?
1: Sonny Rollins.
2: And what sound or noise do you hate?
1: The harmonica.
2: What is your favourite swear word? Fuck, I suppose. What profession, other than those you've already attempted, would you like to attempt?
1: Ah, quite interesting. A nurseryman, horticulturalist, hmm. something like that.
2: And what profession would you absolutely never want to do?
1: Policeman.
2: <laughs> Whatever your beliefs may be in life, if... When your time comes, you open your eyes to the far side and discover that heaven does indeed exist. What would you like to hear said to you on arrival?
1: The green room's over there. (laughs) That's not strictly my invention. There was, um, I used to belong, I'm not sure if I still do, to the theater actors union in New York. And when they sent newsletters, there was, um, I'm not gonna be able to remember his name now, an older actor who's quote, was always above the obituary section. No, it wasn't the actor. It was, uh, that was somebody else. It was Ben Hecht, the screenwriter, Mm. who said, when I die and go to wherever it is, if I find myself in the company of actors, I won't be at all disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) On which note, The uh, the actor I was thinking of, name I still can't remember, also did now he said um when i was a young actor i used to worry and then when i was a middle-aged actor i used to worry and then when i was an older actor he said but now i'm an old actor i don't worry at all
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) i'm I'm aiming for that (laughs) well
2: still a while to go Um, Mm -hmm. um to all those of you who have been watching over the last uh, 24 episodes now thank you very much indeed for your kind company we will be back in the new year uh, with more there may even be one or two uh, specials um in and around the christmas season and uh, keep up to date with our social media We're on twitter at dark unicorn uk instagram at dark unicorn theater and also searchable on facebook dark unicorn productions Um, or sign up for our newsletter on our website, darkunicorn.org, for all information about our forthcoming work. But in the meantime, Paul Freeman, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Paddy, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with Paul Freeman. The show was written, presented and edited by Paddy Cooper, theme music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton, Lucasfilm Limited, Sabin Entertainment, Toy Company, and Fox Family Films, Fantavision Film and International, BV, The Refugee Buddy, Project of Hastings Rather and and especially for Zell Castro, and the UK Friends of Healing Focus. The show was executive produced on behalf of Dark Unicorn Productions, limited by Eleanor Sturton.
1: COVID-19 presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you